is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OT and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Have you seen the 2021 My OT Journey Planner? This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. This planner is a must for OT students and practitioners. Check it out at myotjourney.com. Thank you for tuning in to the My OT Journey podcast. My name is Michael Roth. I'm very excited to be joined today by Angela Hanscom, our guest. She is a seasoned occupational therapist, accomplished author of Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children, a prolific presenter, and founder of Timbernook an internationally acclaimed camp model that offers innovative nature-based developmental programs for kids of all ages. And she does all of that while being a full-time mom to boot. So Angela, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I know that time is of the essence and I appreciate you spending some of that with me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) You're very welcome. So the My OT Journey podcast is about your personal story in occupational therapy, how you got to where you are today. And I usually like to start the interview with the beginning. What was your childhood like? And do you think there's any specific experiences from your childhood that kind of pushed you to being in a caring profession? That's a really good question. Um, I don't, I don't think there was anything specific in when I was really little. I did have plenty of time to play outdoors growing up. So I had all the experiences of playing outside till the lights went off and we would bike to the store and we would, um, I lived in Vermont, so it was in a pretty rural area. So we would bike to the store and bring back cans and we would exchange it for candy. And, um, but I just had fond memories growing up of being outside. So that piece influenced me on the path that I'm on right now, not necessarily to be an occupational therapist, but, um, and I think having um, a very loving family that, you know, I remember my mom always saying, you can do anything you set your mind to, um, you know, was really important at that point in time as well. Now, was this something, you know, playing outdoors, something that your parents really pushed for, or was that kind of like, the era that all kids played outdoors because it's very different today oh yeah it was definitely part of the era like it was just something that all the kids did um i had a my best friend lived right beside me right behind me oh sorry for the old-fashioned clock <laughs> that's okay <laughs> <laughs> it, thing. it has charm <laughs> yeah that's okay um so yeah my i had a best friend that lived in my backyard almost you know the the way that our cul-de-sac ran and we had a fence and there was a door that we, my dad created in the fence that I would pull a string and it would open. And so we would, you know, be on different adventures every day, but it was, there was kids just biking around um, neighborhood kids and it just was very part of the era. Now, do you feel like the bicycling gave you a little bit of a feeling of independence or because I know I'm from suburban Long Island and I feel like in I mean, COVID has been a little bit of an exception because um, children have been getting out more and playing outside more because of that. But I have compared to when even I was growing up, feel like I've seen less and less kids out, you know, biking, less and less kids playing outdoors, less and less kids being able to travel uh, further distance away from their home. Um, Do you think that 
like, do you feel like you had a sense of freedom when you were a kid and, and autonomy from that? Yeah, so I grew up in the early 80s. Um, so I had, um, yeah, pr pretty good freedom. We were allowed to bike around our whole town. My husband um, grew up in, I think it was also where you lived. He grew up in northern Maine, like in the sticks. There's nothing, there's not much up there. And he would bike like 30 minutes away, 30, 40 minute drive away in the car. He would bike with his his brothers and they would, you know, they had free reign. They would take the boat out and go fishing and um, yeah, snowmobiling for miles and stuff. So. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And that's, it's coming from growing up in a more suburban, you know, suburban lifestyle, even though when I was, I grew up in the nineties, it was, you know, we still went out and played and had a good time, but I definitely feel like there, there wasn't that same kind of adventure, you know, and I don't think that children today maybe get that same kind of feeling of adventure and autonomy. And um, so it's nice to hear that, that you had that as a kid. And I do think that when we get later on into your work in Timbernook, that um, that experience growing up definitely influenced some of what you want to provide today. Yes. When you were in school, were you always into the sciences, into, or were you more just, you know, into something different? No, I was really into science. I actually wanted to be a physical therapist um, and since I was 12 years old. So I started like um, interning and being a candy striper <laughs> in the hospital back then um, and just really exposing myself to physical therapy and the treatment modalities. And I took all the hard sciences. I was always um, extremely driven and a type A personality. And as you hear my story, that's changed. Um, but I was very much focused on my plan in life and what I was going to do. Um, I wanted, I wasn't till I was in college that I switched and being to being more interested in occupational therapy. And because there was a couple things that happened. Um, yeah. So I think that that is a pretty common trajectory. I know personally, I was interested in physical therapy first. If you had to, if you had to think of why physical therapy was your first choice, um, can you place, you know, any experience or just a general feeling as to why you chose PT first before OT? I think I definitely feel like my mother had an influence in my interest. She had recommended looking into physical therapy and so she, and she had a friend that was a physical therapist. So I would um, observe him and I thought it was very interesting. I was very athletic and I thought that was fascinating and um, an enjoyable career. I knew it was a good career to go into at the time as well. And I didn't hear much about occupational therapy. I actually didn't really know what it was. So I didn't, I guess I didn't really look into that at all um, until I worked for a camp in college. And um, what really happened was I was working with children with significant disabilities at a summer camp, ironically. Um, I was a camp counselor and, you know, there was, I was fascinated by the, the mental health piece and also the cognitive piece. And I wanted to go into a field that didn't just work on the physical components, um, but all the different cognitive, cognitive pieces as well. And so that's when I started to um, dabble into what is occupational therapy. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I share that experience too, where I didn't know anything about occupational therapists until I started working with them and working in their environment. I 
think one of the main, you know, hopes or dreams of this podcast is that we can kind of share what OTs do a little bit more in a holistic sense by going back and talking about their journeys so that, you know, I wonder if there's a student out there listening to this now in high school can say, wow, I love this. Like, I want to go into this. This field sounds amazing. You know, that this might be their experience, their camp experience, or in my scenario, their hospital experience. So I appreciate you being here to share that. But in that vein, can you tell me a little bit about that summer camp experience that was in college, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually was going to University of Rhode Island just to back up a little bit for um, physical therapy. And ironically, they ended up changing my, like, it was a like a five-year program or something. And they ended up changing it halfway through when I was there to having to go abroad and um, learn the second language or become fluent at, or you had to go abroad. And I really didn't want to go abroad and they started making it longer. And so I ended up transferring. So, and when I transferred, I was, my undergrad degree was kinesiology and physical education. So the study of movement and phys ed. Um, but before I started that program is when I went to the summer camp. And I started noticing, you know, the children of all abilities. Um, the, the summer camp was is very different than what I do now. It was, but it was more, you know, making sure that these children um, could access meaningful activities. I guess um, like swimming and kind of traditional summer camp. You know, like they had dances and it was like they slept over. It was like an overnight type camp. I think it's obvious that those kids really resonated with you and being able to ha give them access to occupations or just, you know, things that they enjoy and want to do. Can you talk a little bit about, was there any experiences where you really felt like, oh, I resonate with this or I'm good at this? Like, I can hear that there's a spark there. And I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on if you know when that spark was lit, if there's a particular student that you worked with that lit that spark or even just the general feeling that you got from the camp? No, I don't. I just really enjoyed it. Like I just really, um, really enjoyed it. And it was really that one thing. Like it was fun because my journey is not like it's there's a lot of like baby steps to it, you know, so like it kind of just switched pivoted me. That was the beginning of the pivot, but it wasn't like a huge aha moment. It was just more that one thing of, I don't want to just work on the muscles, like what else is there? Um, and so when I went into kinesiology, um, just to like move on to the next step is the next thing that kind of happened was I had a professor that was really into mainstreaming. He was into working with kids with special needs. Um, so again, working with uh, children, I loved, you know, working with children of different abilities. And he was huge on making sure that these children are fully included into a real world situations. And he called it mainstreaming. So like to not separate all the kids with special needs and put them in their own program, but for them to be a part of the program. And that will play in later with Tim Brunock. Um, but he, I loved him. He um, was a great influence on me. Um, I started, I had won a couple awards in that, uh, um, pre-professional outstanding awards for phys ed and they were really trying to get me to be a teacher they they are like you're so you're good at teaching children um you know you should look at physical education but I I, I really wanted to I had my mindset on occupational therapy so and then I I met my uh, future husband <laughs> and so that was that really um 
was also a factor because I didn't want to leave too far when I was looking at graduate schools. So I, there was other programs like in Texas and, but I knew I was going to marry this man. And so I um, found a program called, um, it was like a non-traditional master's program for occupational therapy. And it was only an hour, it was in Lewiston, Maine. So it was only an hour from, from my husband, our future husband. And um, here's a funny story. So his mother-in-law, I mean, his mother, sorry, my, my now my mother-in-law, she was a um, preschool teacher for many, many years. And she was fascinated by occupational therapy. And she's like, maybe I'll go to school with you. And I, and I was like, really, you want to go right now? <laughs> um, and there was only nine people in our program. Like this is, again, non-traditional. I was probably one of the only traditional OT students, except maybe one, maybe one other person in that program. And so she signed up with me. So my future mother-in-law was in school with me for two years. And then she was competitive. So she would ask me, let me see your grades. <laughs> what have you? And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's funny. And she wanted to work on every project with me. It's okay. She, she hears this. <laughs> she, it's so funny. It sounds like out of like a, a movie or a book that <laughs> what a what a like it sounds so atypical and also typical mother-in-law daughter-in-law relationship right. <laughs> I was like I hope I do marry this guy because like yes. yeah we're in it now <laughs> right right exactly so so tell me more about that program you said it was non-traditional what are the things that appealed to you about it so it was what appealed to me was it was closer to my husband it was affordable and you could get your master's degree in two years. So I had already gotten my four-year degree undergraduate in kinesiology and phys ed. So it allowed me to be an occupational therapist in two years. And so it was an intense two-year program. Then you took your field work experiences. And so it worked out nicely. What was the program like? Did you find it challenging? Or with your kines background, did you feel prepared? Um, I, I felt prepared. Um, I think I got a 4.0 GPA, <laughs> but in my undergrad was like 3.98. I don't know. Um, but I, I just was, I was, I was always a high achiever, so that wasn't really the issue. Um, it definitely, it definitely made us think outside the box, and I really like that. It was, um, and we had really good professors at the time as well, and it was such a small group that we got a lot of attention. And I think that was really unique about it as well. And it's good to hear that they were teaching you to think outside the box, because I think one of, and this I think is just an opinion, a student opinion, one of the things that I've heard from other students and from new practitioners is that they feel that sometimes the didactic education doesn't necessarily prepare you for the realities of occupational therapy, or the idea that fieldwork is where you really learn, you know, what it means to be an occupational therapist. Did do you feel like that's you share that sentiment, or do you feel like because you had a little bit more non traditional, um, one on one intensive kind of collegiate experience that it prepared you more for a field that is is so wide in breadth and depth? I felt like they did a good job of talking about the theories, and they kept saying you're not going to know everything when you leave here, and also brought us back to occupation. The occupation of um, what we're doing is the roots of, t of um, 
of our work, I guess. So they, they kind of um, warned us about being too activity driven and too task oriented. Um, and I think I, that always kind of um, resonated with me and stuck with me is that whole piece of like, think outside the box, challenge everything. You're going to see all kinds of stuff, but <laughs> stay true to, to our occupation. Mm -hmm. And looking at the way that the, our profession is moving today, it seems like they were ahead of their times that we're really trying to look at using occupation more in our interventions and focusing on occupation-based interventions, not necessarily just preparatory activities. So it's good to hear that when you were going to school, that that was something that was being pushed for and being kind of heralded as the, as the occupational therapy of the future. Yes, absolutely. Besides obviously the occupation focus, was there any kind of theories or philosophies that really resonated with you in school that you think kind of determined the way that you would practice in the future? I was, they were always teaching us to kind of look at all the different theories and to not get stuck on one too. It was another thing, but so, so not so much. I don't, I still don't like stick to one. <laughs> I just can't go in the box anyway, but, um, but yeah, the more like use eclectic approach, I guess, was something that they, yeah. I think that's good, especially because you know, we can't, it, occupational therapy isn't a one size fit all profession right. that we need to have all of these theories to kind of keep in our little toolkit so that when it's most appropriate to use them, we can, you know, and now we're learning a lot about dynamic systems theory and looking at to how systems, you know, all play a role in one another, kind of maybe even the spiritual successor of like PEO and POP, which is for listeners who don't know a person environment occupation model for OT, where we look at all of the children that we're treating as whole people. So how they interact with their environment, how they interact with the things they do and how, you know, they interact with themselves and all of their personal ability levels. So it's good to hear from at least personally an occupational therapist that, you know, we shouldn't focus on one kind of theory and we shouldn't be, you know, just sensory integration or just biomechanical that we should consider everything so that we can best impact the child and help them achieve all of their goals. Absolutely. So you did a two-year intensive program, you know, with your mother-in-law. <laughs> when, you, when you completed um, that intensive program and intensive for many, you know, reasons, <laughs> what, what was your next step? So I did a, um, two field work placements. One was in mental health for children. So I worked in an inpatient mental health unit with children, which is again, very different than what I'm doing now, but it was a great experience. It was um, eye-opening the, the type of trauma that a lot of children are put through. So that was um, very interesting. And then I actually, the second internship that I worked, I ended up being my first job. So the second one was, working at Eastern Maine Medical Center. Um, I worked on the rehab unit and all the different units, actually pediatric, cardiac, ortho, orthopedic. And that was my first job. And I loved the, I loved the staff. I learned a lot really quickly. It kept me on my feet, but it was, I, I learned very quickly. It was not 
it was not my path forward. It was not my, um, my mission in life, I guess. I didn't really, I didn't like really uh, go to work being super excited, I guess. It was more of a job versus my calling. And so I, and I, yeah, a lot of the stuff that I was doing, I was like, I, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, activities of daily living and stuff. I just knew that I was supposed to work with children. So what happened next is my husband was working for, so we got me. So basically I got married right when I got out of graduate school and that was our first year of marriage together. And so, um, so I'm adjusting to, to being newly married. I have this job that I don't quite like. And then my husband, um, graduates, he went to Maine Maritime Academy and he's looking for a job. And there's like, at that time, there was not a lot of jobs for engineers. And so he got um, recruited to go to South Carolina with General Electric and to work there in a leadership program. So we moved to South Carolina for a couple of years, which I grew up in New England my whole life. So I lived in Vermont and Maine my whole life. And so it was a little bit of a culture shock. It was really neat in so many ways. In some ways, I, we got pretty homesick. Uh, but what was nice about it is I kind of got exposed to all different, I was in all over the place. I was in the school, like the school environment down there for a year. I did home health and I worked with uh, preemies for, for about a year. And then that business like shut down. So then I worked for a, um, a company that was like an outpatient clinic. And so a pediatric, typical pediatric outpatient clinic. And they kept hiring more and more OTs and it was like, you know, we have to sign up for a room and there wasn't enough therapists for the the needs down there. We would like, there was a wait list that went out at least a year. So we'd have this big book we would go through and it, the kids were waiting at least a year before they could get any kind of therapy. And I was starting to pay attention to that. Like why this huge need for occupational therapy? Uh, I thought it was cool though, cause they had a pool and I could do aquatic therapy. So, but then um, my husband got a job back in New Hampshire, in New England, and we were excited to go home because I, at that time we also had our first child. And so my parents, my parents are from Maine. They would have to fly to come see us every three months to see the baby. And so we were really separated from our family and family is really important for us. So we wanted to get home. Um, so that was, so we ended up in New Hampshire. We ended up right in between <laughs> Vermont and Maine. <laughs> what has it been like working in multiple different states as an occupational therapist? Um, I know that, and for students who may not be OTs yet, or for people looking to the profession, our licensure is state-based. So some states have transferability between licenses, some don't. It's There's a lot of paperwork that goes along with trying to transfer over. What was your experience like moving to a different state and practicing as an occupational therapist? And was there any kind of additional culture shock because of that, learning the new laws and legislations and how um, the new state kind of practiced OT? That's a good question. I, it wasn't really hard with um, transferring over for South Carolina. It, it was more of a culture shock because going into the homes and I mean, it was just a very, it's just a very different culture. So, um, you know, I got called a Yankee a lot, <laughs> so, but um just being exposed to different culture and being, you know, learning about them and stuff. And, um, but there, it wasn't hard with, as far as the rules for OT, I felt like it was actually pretty simple in South Carolina. It was actually harder to become an OT in New Hampshire. 
um, which is interesting, but it was not really a huge issue either. It was just some, you know, hurdles that you had to overcome. Yeah, and yeah. at that point, I'm sure you'd already overcome so many hurdles. Yeah. That it was just <laughs> one not, more thing. That wasn't very, yeah. <laughs> when you finally settled in New Hampshire, I'm just looking at kind of all of the experiences that you talked about, how you, when you were in your mental health field work, how eye-opening that was for you. And I'm sure that working in physics, it really challenged your understanding of the human body and, uh, you know, just the anatomy and physiology. And then doing early intervention with, you know, pre, you know, preschoolers and working in pediatric outpatient, you really gained in the early years of your profession, a very wide scope of what the profession is. How do you feel like that impacted you when you started your practice in New Hampshire? So when I, my first job back in New Hampshire was working for a outpatient therapy clinic again, um, because I knew that I was interested in that. Um, but having that wide scope really, I guess, it opened my eyes to all the different avenues of OT and it started to fine tune what I was interested in. But I knew it was weird. I wasn't fully, I wasn't fully, um, how do I explain it? I hadn't found my niche yet, if that makes sense. I knew I was supposed to work with kids, but I wasn't like fully um, happy. I don't know. So I only worked at this clinic now, the clinic that I was working in. Um, for maybe three or four years before I ended up like being done with OT for a while. Um, so I kind of came to my breaking point. At that point, there was a lot about productivity um, and like making sure you see enough clients. And I felt like sometimes that could sacrifice the client relationship and also our enjoyment of our work because it was focused on numbers and math and also a lot on insurance and who controlled the money. So I also wanted to get creative around that time. Um, I tend to <laughs> like to think outside the box as I've told you. And so I was presenting some ideas and I, they got shot down pretty quickly. And so I was getting a sense of like, I was being kept like you stay here, you do this. Um, ironically at that time too, I never wanted to be a manager of anything. I, you know, I just wanted to be a traditional OT. I thought again, that was my plan, but I was also unhappy. And when my second daughter was born, now we're in New Hampshire for a couple of years. Um, I wanted, I was working only part-time. I ended up wanting to stay home and enjoy their childhood. So my plan at that point now was to just, to just go and enjoy their childhood. So I ended up leaving the practice. Um, but before I left, I started noticing some interesting sensory issues. Like um, I had a little boy come into the clinic setting that didn't like wind in his face. And I remember thinking, how do I treat that in a clinic setting? And I was like, do I get a fan and blow the fan on him? <laughs> like, you know, like just really like, what? this is interesting sensory issues. A lot of kids not wanting to get dirty. But the number one issue, you know, that I was starting to get trained with like astronaut training and therapeutic listening, the number one issue was balance and that kids were becoming more and more clumsy. So I started just kind of paying attention, like really paying attention to what was happening in the environment around me. And that's when I went home and um, I joined, I ended up deciding I'm gonna milk this for all it's worth and just be a stay at home mom for a while. 
but it, and I had, again, no plans to work anytime soon. I ended up joining a mom's group and the, cause that was kind of the thing to do at the time to meet other moms, to start signing your kid up for all these activities. And I remember some of my friends coming up to me, asking me again, we interesting questions like my four-year-old spinning all the time. Why is she spinning in circles all the time? Um, another one was in preschool um, and her mother was concerned she couldn't pay attention. And I was like, this is, so obviously I didn't answer them, but I was like, these are interesting questions I'm being asked. Um, and then my own daughter, she was around four, almost five that summer. She turned five that summer. I noticed a lot of her friends were needing occupational therapy. And I was like, this is really fascinating to me that all like, cause when I grew up in the early eighties, remember I told you, I didn't, I didn't even really know much about occupational therapy and it was really reserved more for children with more severe disabilities. Um, at the time, at least my knowledge of it was, you know, for, you know, children with cerebral palsy. And, um, so I thought it was interesting that a lot of kids were receiving occupational therapy. And so I just was again, you know, paying attention to this. I just, I find your story so motivating and inspirational. And the reason is because I think that there are many occupational therapists who maybe even now are experiencing what you experienced working in that outpatient clinic, that burnout is a significant problem with our profession. And it really is because of those productivity standards, because of debt fighting with insurance, and because we as occupational therapists know that we need to treat the whole child and there needs to be more flexibility in the way that we practice so that we can cater towards individual children's needs. But sometimes the bureaucracy and infrastructure really limits what we can do. Yes. And I think that what you did is what a lot of OTs end up doing in that situation is when, you know, you try as you did to change the structure and it doesn't that you need to take a second to, you know, go and recollect and, you know, follow your happiness for a little while. And when I hear you talk about, you know, being a stay at home mom, I'm sure, and I don't share this opinion, but I'm sure there are some people that say, well, you were an OT and now you're a stay at home mom. Like, why are you not an occupational therapist? Why are you not a professional? But hearing what you were saying about listening to other mothers and observing children in their natural environment and really in almost doing interviews of the populations of, you know, mothers that see those experiences, it feels like you're almost doing a population study that you went and you started seeing as a mother, what other mothers were experiencing and what these children were experiencing and really valuing that perspective of mothers that I think that Oftentimes, you know, therapists and medical professionals can look and say, you know, oh, it's just the mom being the mom or, oh, it's just the mom overthinking things or, oh, it's just the mom, you know, expecting too much of their child. So it, while I think that some people could say being a stay at home mom, you weren't doing OT, it sounds very much like you were still doing OT. You were just also enjoying your children's childhood. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what happened next was my daughter was going to kindergarten. She, and again, she just turned five. So she was a really young five. And I remember the teacher met with us, um, ahead of time before the kids came 
And she said, this is not kindergarten like you remember growing up. She says, this is really like first grade. And then she started saying things like, and I, this is a true story, but she said, um, we're not gonna have time to teach your children how to cut with scissors. So my husband's gonna pre-cut everything at nighttime. So your kids don't have to worry about that skill. Then she said, we have five minutes for snack. This is when kindergarten was only in the morning. And she said, well, five minutes for snack, but if that gets in the way of curriculum, it will become a working snack. Then she said, we have 15 minutes for recess, but when it snows and here in New England, you know, there's snow much of the year. She said that it will be an indoor recess because she said, we don't have time. Again, this no issue of no time for your children. We, we don't have time to change your children into um, winter gear and then unchange them. And then she said, um, if they can't tie their shoes, please put elastic laces on them or Velcro. And so that to me as a therapist, you know, that works on development with children, I just knew it wasn't right what they were asking of children, expecting developmentally of young, really young children. And so, but I did want to give it an opportunity. I enjoyed, I enjoyed learning all the way through. And what happened was my daughter came about a month into the program, she came home and said, I hate school um, because they were pushing reading as well um, at a very early age. And she was not ready neurologically for that. Uh, she's an avid reader now, but at the time she wasn't ready. And so she started getting pulled out for extra services thinking something's not right with her. Um, so I ended up pulling her out. So again, not my plan and it keeps getting shot out of the water is I end up homeschooling, which my mom at the time was going, what are you doing? You're like first you're quitting your job and now you're homeschooling. Um, I only homeschooled a couple of years, but there was a reason for it now looking back because I started learning about different educational philosophies. I started learning about, and this is very OT-ish, Reggio Emilia, where the environment is the third teacher. The environment influences the child's learning opportunities. I learned about Waldorf where there was more natural materials, less overwhelming stimuli. Um, there was a rhythm to the day, a flow, um, which will play into effect later. Um, I learned about Finland where the kids were in the river dissecting fish to learn about them and how they were way outscoring us in science and math here in America. Um, and it was more laid back. And so I started really um, taking a different path, even for education. Um, and then what happened was I also started noticing right around that time that there wasn't a lot of kids outside. Like, as you said, um, I was, we live on 12 acres of woodland. So I live literally in the boonies out here. Um, and we have 60 acres of conservation surrounding us on our property. One day I was taking a shortcut through a neighborhood to get to our property. And I, I know there's children in those homes and I was looking around with my young children and I said, where are the children? You know, I remember again, biking until the lights went off. I remember playing outside and it just struck me. I'm like, I never see children outside. So the next step for me was really, I wanted to do a program to get kids outside. Um, I thought it was in the form of nature classes until I ran one. Um, and I had a parent um, come up to me with her son in hand and she asked me, why do the leaves change color? And I said, I have, I have no idea. <laughs> I think it has something to do with a pigment in the leaf. I was trying to recall from my own education, right? And, um, but it really helped me reflect on, you know, what is my profession? I'm not, because at the time running nature programs, this is 10 years ago, um, 
was really naturalists or environmentalists or um, it was teachers. And so I'm like, I'm not a teacher. <laughs> what am I doing out here? I'm not an environmentalist or a naturalist. What does an occupational therapist have anything to do with nature programming? So I started to reflect on our profession and the occupation of a child is play. Outdoor play is an incredibly important occupation for children. And it, it affects everything. It affects the mind, the body, the senses. Um, and it's something that's been at risk in the past 30 years. And it's been significantly decreased to the point that we're actually seeing changes in health and development in ways that we never expected. And so I really realized that my, I guess like even recently, it's really coming into focus that my mission is to bring back the occupation of outdoor play and not only bring it back, but to enrich that experience for children and empower them with that occupation. And the other thing we're very good, as you know, occupational therapists can analyze any activity or experience for its therapeutic value. So I realized I could offer something different than um, the educational perspective or the environmental perspective that we could look at something, we could look at outdoor play through the therapeutic lens. We could look at it, how it's uh, impacting balance or it's helping to organize the senses. It's, you know, the bird sounds are helping to orient your body to where you, where you are in space. And how, and the more I observe children out there and compared that to what I saw in a clinic setting and in an educational setting, I realized that that was the ultimate sensory experience and that that was where um, we could do things that you cannot replicate in a therapy setting, in a traditional therapy setting. No matter how you try, you can never replicate what's out there. And, um, and there's more freedom for children out there. There's freedom of choice and true play is a choice. And I believe true occupation is a choice. And so what we can give out there is a great gift. And so that's, that's when I started to realize that I had something, <clears throat> something unique here. Um, and um, there was a couple other things. I don't know if you want to stop and ask questions because my story, it just keeps unfolding, but. I would love to, um, I would love to unpack a little bit because as I'm listening to your story, there are things that like little light bulbs that go off as I learn a little bit more of you know, why you decided to go into what is such a meaningful, but uh, such a unique niche occupational therapy perspective. One of the things that I find interesting is you were a home, you know, you homeschooled your daughter. I think that, and you talk a little bit about learning more about just kind of education and alternate educational styles, looking at, um, you know, like Waldorf schools and things like that. Do you feel like learning more about education and educational theory positively impacted your OT practice? Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, especially a Reggio Emilia approach. I had a friend that um, I, I worked with in the beginning. And again, you got to remember my children are really young. So I had um, a five-year-old and then a I think a two-year-old at the time. And <clears throat> I had all these great ideas because I'm an idea person. And I had all these things I wanted my children to learn. And I brought them to our, our meeting and she had an art studio and she was Reggio inspired and she 
And one time um, she said, you know, Angie, you need to back off. She's like, because whatever you come up with for ideas is never going to be as good as what the children come up with. You know, they truly need to just play right now. And that's where they're going to be learning <clears throat> and challenging their own theories in ways that you, you just can't replicate. And so I think that was the beginning of um, kind of seeing things through a different perspective as well and helped enrich the OT perspective. I think that's so important, especially because child-directed occupational therapy is kind of the goal of OT, that we want our clients, even if they're not children, to be engaged in the therapeutic interventions, because if they're engaged, they're going to have more positive outcomes. I really like that you started viewing the outdoors as the ultimate play arena, that we can't really replicate our natural environment in the OT clinic. And I think it harkens back to how limiting sometimes our outpatient or even in-school OT clinics can be. And once again, I find it um, inspirational and motivating to hear you say that you can mobilize some of that educational theory and that learning that you learned being a homeschool mom, because I think it's important for occupational therapists to know the language of the other side. If you're working in a school setting and you want to change the game and you want to promote the profession, it's important to speak the language of an educator and to understand the perspectives that they take. Um, do you think that some of your success now professionally is due to the fact that you can speak that language, both the language of a mom, a language of an occupational therapist, and a language of an educator. Yeah, well, I think one benefit we have um, here at Timbernook, I know we haven't gotten, we might have to do a part two, <laughs> um, is that half of our Timbernook providers, and we haven't even gotten to this part yet, but half of the people that take this concept and do it are from the world of education. And the other half are occupational therapists. And there's some, you know, there's a physical therapist in there too, but there's, it really is interesting that the world of education and um, really, you know, there's certain people that value play uh, for its learning potential. And then that I think this resonates with a lot of occupational therapists because it, bring it brings us back to our roots, the occupation of play. So that gives strength to the program because we have both lens. And it's not just, it's not, I'm not the experts in, of education, but I've been surrounded by that for many years. That's so important. And maybe to even get closer to Timbernook, once you started realizing, you know, that occupational therapists have a vested interest in doing outdoor play therapy because of our ability to do task analysis. And once you started realizing that a lot of the balance challenges and sensory challenges that children faced were in part due to not playing in natural environments, was that kind of the beginning of Timbernook? Did you, you know, get a get an LLC and start your own business, or was there a little bit more of a slow, steady progress? Oh yeah, that? it's definitely slow, steady progress. <laughs> so um, let's see what what came next. I, I okay, I knew I wanted to do something with getting kids outdoors. I did the nature class and realized that wasn't quite the path. But then I started analyzing OT. Oh, I had a friend come up to me and said she was in. Um, the market marketing industry, ironically. And she said, I think you're going to find more parents interested 
in your program if you do um, summer camps. And she said, I said, okay, I'll do, cause this was not, again, I didn't realize this was gonna be a big deal. I thought, okay, I'll do it one summer for my community. I'll do it for my own children. I really was more interested in helping my family and my community. So I said, I'll, I'll test it out. I'll do one week of summer camp. And she said, well, to market it, you have to do three weeks at least. And I'm like, okay, I'll do three weeks of summer camp. So I went to the town and said, I want to sign. And they said, oh no, you're starting a business. So you need to have a surveyor come out and survey your land and all this. It was a big ordeal. Um, but I, I decided to go to the University of New Hampshire and um, to the OT department. I thought, what a great opportunity for occupational therapy students to see the outdoors through a therapeutic lens. And, you know, I always loved mentoring. And I always loved um, job shadowing as an OT student. So I thought this would be really cool for them. So that first summer I took four students as my camp counselors and they were volunteers. I had no idea what I was getting into, um, really how much work it was to put on this kind of program. Because traditionally I've always worked one-on-one -on -one with a child or in a small group, but I wasn't used to running a bigger group of children. And so I didn't realize how much work it was. So um, the first year was very very activity oriented and I was trying to entertain the kids. It was fun and it, um, it was a great success, but there wasn't a lot of child directed play per se. Um, after three weeks were over, I said, whew, um, I'm all done. I'm never doing that again <laughs> because I was exhausted. Um, but what happened was those four students went back to the UNH and told other OT students. And I had 15 volunteers email me asking, could they volunteer the next year? Then I had parents saying, that was so great. Can you, you're going to do this again, right? And um, I had a, two teachers reach out to me at that time. It's funny how word pretty quickly got out there. And I had a wildlife ecologist reach out. He still works with me today. And he's an educator. And I had another educator um, ask to help me. And one of them said, wouldn't it be fun to do the three little pigs? We could do stories out in the woods. And she said, we could sit at a table and we'll hear the story, Three Little Pigs, and they'll build a little house out of hay sitting down, a little house out of bricks, a little house out of, um, what's the other one? Six bricks and hay, right? And so I said, oh, wouldn't it be fun to bring out bales of hay into the woods and have big sticks out there and have real bricks and they, where they can engage the muscles and senses and, and live and breathe um, the, the houses they make? and that it could be their own design. So, and she was like, yes, that would be amazing. And so that, that shifted our um, programming from being very um, like entertaining activity directed to being more of experience oriented where the kids are living and breathing a play experience out there. They don't necessarily bring it home. They're not gonna bring home their three little pigs homes, but they had an experience that created change in the child. Like it, it challenged them in some way. And, um, the more we ran the program, the more realized that they just needed plenty of time to play. They just wanted to play. Um, they weren't interested in learning more facts. They had that already in school. Um, and so the programs evolved over the years. But um, going back just for a second. So what happened is every year I'd say, okay, I'll do it one more year because <laughs> again, this wasn't my plan. And I had my own family and I was still staying at home. So I didn't want to run summer camps all summer long. But what happened is about three years into it, 
I released my camps in February because if you run summer camps in America, you have to do it way ahead of time. And at nine o'clock, um, I released some 902. I had wait list for all four weeks. I had two parents call me, one both in tears, one saying, hey, my kid got into your program last year and didn't get in this year. She said, what are you going to do about that? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, again, because I, I really didn't want to run nine weeks of summer camp. Um, and so then I had a physical therapist reach out to me and an occupational therapist. And they both said, this is very unique for our profession. Can we, can we take this program and replicate it? That's when I realized that I had something that I needed to share. And it actually had nothing to do with me, but it was a gift to be um, given kind of thing. So then I have no business experience. Like I said, I never wanted to be a manager. So the people that originally worked with me laughed that I'm like, I own an international company. <laughs> but um, so basically at that point, I, I had um, found two business mentors that had worked with big companies. Um, and they started helping me to uh, create a model where I could license this program and share with people um, and keep a really strong program um, and brand essence as well. So I learned a lot very quickly. Again, this is only 10 years ago, uh, actually seven years ago when we, so in 2013 is when we created Timbernook. Before that, I was running these summer camps and I was also doing private practice where I would take my swings outdoors and I would do like nature-based OT. But the more I ran the programming, the more I abandoned my traditional intervention, even though it was outside and I was doing therapy one-on-one -on -one with children, I realized what I saw in the woods and that children would inspire each other to do things I couldn't replicate when there was a, a lot of direct intervention. I couldn't get what was happening. And so I actually, and I knew that wasn't my path. So I ended up abandoning that and totally immersed into this, this program called Timbernook. So fast forward a little bit. Um, I, um, I decided I was gonna market in New England because that was my plan. And I wrote an article called Why Kids Fidget and what we can do about it. And um, it was something that I was seeing the kids were overly restricted over and over and it was affecting them. Um, and they're being taken away from the ability to play outdoors. And that, that was my driving force. Seeing what was happening to kids in traditional settings and the restrictions on them and how it was affecting development is what kept me going. And that's where Balance and Barefoot came about, the book. But I'll, I'll pause here because I don't have a lot of information. No, and you got, it's a lot of great information. I'm glad that you shared it. And obviously you're, you speak like a presenter. So it was all engaging to listen to. Um, one quick question. When you started the camps, were you working with um, all types of children or were you focusing on children with developmental delays or any other kind of learning-based need? That's a really good question. So we no, I worked with um, children in the community. So I didn't, and, and it actually brought me back to my roots of mainstreaming. Remember I told you way back, I really enjoyed the professor that said, we shouldn't separate children with that special needs and put them into a program. And so um, what I did was I had, um, I had kept that in the back of my mind. And so my program was for a typical community. But what happened is children, people knew that I was an OT and so I always had children with different abilities in there. And what I found was there was the greatest transformation stories happen in the, with the children with special needs out there because they're, 
their models, their peer models, um, they would demonstrate more advanced language skills for those children, or they would um, help with the social emotional piece and come in and, and assist children that struggled with that. And so we saw greater change in those children because they had those authentic, real play models out there. That's really good to hear. And it's kind of incredible that you became, you know, an LLC in 2013, but your, what you were practicing is, you know, we look at say our OT practice framework, the fourth edition that just came out and the focus of the profession. And for those of you who don't know, the practice framework is kind of a guideline for how occupational therapists practice. We focus so much on population and group health. And the idea that you saw a need as an occupational therapist, kind of just looking at your environment and created this program for your population, for your community that was in high demand and people wanted it and kept you going and kept you going, uh, moving forward. I want to talk a little bit about, because you brought up Why Kids Fidget, the article, and how that kind of started you on the writing path to create Balanced and Barefoot. Um, I love the book. I think it's great. I think the stories that you put in there are amazing. Who's the intended audience for Balanced and Barefoot? So the audience was always supposed to be mostly for parents. It had to be um, created in a way, so the editors and the publisher I worked with, in a way that could break it down in a really simple sense. Um, because sometimes when you read our OT books, um, it's way, it can be way over our heads. And so I really started dissecting like what we know as therapists and what would be, what crossed over and what would be helpful for parents to hear. But it also is, um, I feel like educators, it's very helpful for educators to read and, and actually anyone that works with children, um, to be honest. I definitely agree. And one of the stories that I want to bring up that you have in your book that I think would be good for people who are looking to be maybe OT innovators or who are looking to kind of explain our profession is a story that you brought up about one of the children saying, why aren't you directing and giving us activities? You know, my mom's paying a lot of money for us to have this experience and you're not giving me things to do and tasks to do. And I think that while that sentiment is, you know, very focused on the Timbernook experience, that OTs face that a lot that parents will say, you're just playing with my kid. Why are you, you know, getting paid to just go into work and play with kids and what you're doing isn't skilled and what you're doing isn't important. Can you tell people what your response is to that? Um, you know, maybe not specifically what your response is in the book so people can go and read it on their own, but uh, just kind of your response to OTs who maybe don't know how to advocate for their profession or talk to parents who may say, you're just playing with my child. You're not doing anything skilled. Um, so, well, it, I think that's such a, like, there's so many different ways I could answer that. But I think that, First of all, outdoor play, when it's true occupation, it brings a richness to the therapeutic components. Again, in a way, when you start intervening more, you start doing protocols, you start overly directing the, the, the opportunity, um, you actually take away the richness, the therapeutic value of it. And that's something that's really been on my heart a lot. And I, I really feel like I want to dive into more, but it really does. It starts every time we intervene, every time we think we know better, every time we limit and restrict, we take away the therapeutic value for the child. When we, the closer we get to true occupation, the richer the experience for the child neurologically. Um, 
so I think that's one thing to think about. The other thing is um, we also take away the opportunity, like just a, a couple examples. When we constantly entertain like that child, if, we're, if we become the idea person for the child, um, that child is not, they don't learn how to think for themselves. And like even just initiating a play idea for a child and executing that play idea is a really important skill. Um, it's executive functioning, higher level thinking skills, and they need to practice it. It's best done through play because that is the occupation of a child. And we shouldn't feel bad about having opportunities for children to come up with their own play ideas. In fact, it's desperately needed. So that's just one reason why. <laughs> but the other thing I really want um, occupational therapists to think about, one of the most powerful ways to advocate for outdoor play is I was always taught to do no harm in my ethics classes. And we're at the point where we're restricting children so much, we're taking away their rights to, of outdoor play. This is a, that's a childhood right to that occupation that is affecting their development. And so now we're doing harm. And we really not be, we need to not be afraid to advocate for children because they, they don't have a voice. Um, and so I think that's very powerful. And there's so much research. Any research you do will back it up. So I think going to the research, um, unveiling, the, unveiling people's eyes to the truth is really powerful. And once you know the truth of what's happening, it's really hard to go back because it's hard to you know, harm children. So I think that's probably one of the most powerful ways. I think that's a great, a great thing to kind of, you know, stick a pin in and uh, really take away from this is that advocacy for least restrictive environments is so important for children meeting their, you know, functional outcomes. And it's important for children regardless of their ability level. Yeah. And I kind of want to use that as a springboard to talk about Timber Nook today. What is it like to have Timbernook be, you know, an international organization that that mission to create a least restrictive outdoor play environment is being shared with children across the world? How does that feel as kind of the progenitor of the organization? And what do you think the implications are for our practice? That's a good question. Um, so it feels like I'm doing exact, for me personally, it feels like I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing at this moment in time. And to me, that's, um, my motto is to let go of all your preconceived thoughts of where your journey is going for students and to really focus on what is needed and take the next step. If I try to get too far ahead, I make a mess of things. <laughs> so I take one step at a time, I discern the next move um, and I do it. So I know what we're doing is incredibly therapeutic and needed and it's needed more than ever right now because now we're in a pandemic and children are um, being isolated um, and what they need to heal through this process is to connect and to and to play and so it's actually all of our um, like locations all of our providers that are doing this um, if they open their doors back up, they are flooded and they're busier than, more than ever because a lot of people are going, kids are going remote or they're going hybrid approach and they are on a computer all day long. And so they're desperately needing to just be children and to be kind of protected like this um, away from the fears of the world right now because it's way too much of a burden for little children. So, um, so it's needed in that way. Um, 
more than ever. Um, but I think, um, what was the other, you had a couple, there was a couple of questions within that big meaty question. I, I think what are the implications for the practice, you think, um, advocating for children in the way that Timbernook does, um, specifically on an international level? Yeah. Well, I think that we know it's a universal right. And so this, um, it really applies to children in Australia, to children. So we're in Australia, we're in, um, we're in the UK, um, Canada, and throughout the United States. And real, but it's really a universal need. It's just like nutrition. Kids need to eat. They need to get enough sleep, but they also need en enough outdoor play. Um, so I think um, I think it's desperately needed. And what we're learning too is that children are able to overcome fears and um, do things again out there that it is hard to have them do in a more traditional setting. So um, the other thing is kind of what I've already been talking about is really trying to um, advocate for occupational therapists to kind of go back to their roots. Like, you know, occupation is a choice, true play is a choice. How can we use environment to inspire and empower play um, in a way that where you don't need so much adult interaction, um, you know? No, I definitely agree. And I hope that listeners are excited about this kind of occupational therapy as much as this excites me. I think it's incredible the kind of work that you're doing. If any of the listeners wanted to learn more about Timbernook, what resources could they access? Okay. So the two ways that um, you can find this is um, timbernook.com, the book, Balance and Barefoot. It's kind of a good starting point. But um, you can also follow us on Facebook. We do a lot of, share a lot of research. You'll see videos of different sites. So you can see it in different parts of the world and how um, certain play themes come up too. We see a lot of kids creating societies out there and hierarchies and really interesting things. Um, but yeah, follow us on there. Um, and then I think that there's a couple of good books that would help supplement um, this reading. So Free to Learn by Peter Gray is a really good book. If you want to read about what is true play, um, you know, the importance of having mixed ages and true neighborhood play. Again, you want true occupation. You want to facilitate true neighborhood play. Not all the kids shouldn't be five years old. There should be a mixture of ages. Um, there's, there's therapeutic value in that. Um, and then, um, I'm trying to think, um, Richard Lou's book, uh, Last Child in the Woods is pretty good as well. Um, but those would be a good starting place. And then, yeah, um, I bet bring you down a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely. And we'll include all of that in yeah. the description. And I know that your organization does offer provider training as well. So if people are interested, they could also go to the website and work with your organization too. Yeah. So we do train people to take this concept and create a business around it in their location, in their community. And then um, the other, the other avenue is that we now are working with schools to bring Timbernook to public schools and private schools. And that's been fascinating too, is they actually have Timbernook time during the school day. These children is impacting their educational environments. So. Really incredible. And I think for, in case there's a parent listening who maybe doesn't have access to a Timbernook site or is resonates with the kind of things that you're talking about, in addition to reading the book, what's one thing that they can do with their child right now to 
give them that outdoor experience in a least restrictive environment? Yeah, I would just, um, even if you live in an urban setting, I think that getting children outdoors in any way possible is really key. Um, some of the urban settings, um, if you, you just have, to, it's a little bit more work. You have to advocate for children. So sometimes um, having one adult supervised, take turns with your neighbors. So someone's out there to make sure kids have access to play. Um, there's been things about closing streets down to allow children to play in the streets. Um, so lots of suburban areas, you can, again, make friends with your neighbors. So you create that sense of village again and, um, you know, tell, you know, get your, all your kids outdoors. Um, if you are in a rural area, you can step outdoors with your kids and set out some materials for them to build forts with um, and different, different um, basic, we call them loose parts. So you can look up loose parts too. Um, so tires, planks, um, curtains, things that have many, many affordances, many uh, ways um, play opportunities will inspire creative play. And lastly, I would invite kids over for the day, you know, um, so it's not just a play date, not just an hour, but just, you know, get them outside, go out if you feel more comfortable being out there, but allow children to play with other children and inspire each other. And then phase yourself out. Like I would get, <laughs> eventually phase yourself out so they can become more independent. I love, I love that advice. And I think that any parents listening will really get a lot of value from it too. I do wanna go over uh, some of the takeaways that I got from this. Uh, journey that you shared with me. And then I want to leave you with the last word. So if there's any additional takeaways, something that you really want our listeners to remember from this, from this interview, I'm going to give you that opportunity. What I really hear from your story is first to start small, that as an occupational therapist looking to change the profession, maybe somebody like you that has that fire burning, that knows that they want to make a difference in the world, it's really important to just look at the environments that you're given to start working in different practice settings, get a really holistic perspective on the profession. And then if you feel like there's a need or see a need to start small, maybe do one summer camp or one activity or one thing and see if the demand is, is there for that need. Second, I hear that you let people come to you. You let experts come to you from different professions to kind of add value to what you are producing. And I think that's so important that we as professionals allow other experts to kind of add and bolster what we're doing so that it can have the best impact to children in multiple settings. I think that your next step, learning more about the business side and finding mentorship and seeking mentorship is so important on the path to being an OT professional like yourself, especially somebody in innovative practice. And I think my favorite takeaway is that it's important as practitioners, once we start small and let other people support us, other professionals support us and learn more through mentors that we advocate that children's ability to play in a least restrictive environment is a universal right. It's something that we as practitioners have not only expertise in, but a moral obligation to really support in every setting, in across, internationally. So I think that that kind of four-tiered step on your path is really important for therapists to take home. Uh, and I really, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of 
share that through your lens and through your experience. And, and for you, what's the one takeaway that you would give to listeners of the podcast? I would like to end with um, once you find your niche or find your path um, and you know it's your calling, um, it's easy to say yes in the beginning. It's not easy to keep saying yes because it's not always an easy journey. And I think that's something that we just want to be, you know, like we want it easy, but it's not, it's not true. Like you really, um, so my thing is never give up. So once you know that you're on the right path, um, just take those. And the best thing to do is take one step at a time with that as well. And the, all kinds of trials and barriers will come your way. Just keep doing the right thing and things will unfold in beautiful ways, but to never give up either. I love that. Never give up. What a good takeaway. What a good way to end the podcast. Angela, thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to leave uh, everything that we talked about, all of your books and contact information in the description. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media, on Facebook at MyOTJourney and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!